Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brady and Diana, of course, for blessing us in worship. And we thank Caroline as well for the accompaniment last Sunday. That was wonderful indeed. Well, I know some of us have had some trepidation as we have watched the news and seen what is happening out of Russia and Ukraine this week. The drumbeat of war that has turned into reality. That's fearful for many. But here today as Christians, what shall we do with events like this? Well, first off, we pray. We pray for peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. And next, we must understand. First Chronicles, 12, first Chronicles 12 tells us about men of Issachar who understood the times. They understood the world in which they lived. And Scripture tells us that we are to seek out wisdom like silver. That we are to be a people of humble understanding, not of opinion and conjecture. And the only way to know, and the only way to do that, is to know what God says on a matter. To know the Word. Otherwise, we're just another clanging symbol. So let us grow in understanding. This week, we see war. And we see conflict. We saw it on the TV screen. But likely, that was not the only place we saw it. We may have seen it at work. You may have seen conflict in your own home. With a spouse or a child. If we consider our own week, chances are we didn't need to travel to Ukraine to find conflict and war. What do we do with that, Christian? When we see conflict and war, whether at work, with a spouse, with a child, or on a battlefield, do we have understanding? Well, understanding only comes from the Word. So let us consider James 4, 1 through 2. He writes, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. Isn't James wonderfully practical? He not only identifies a problem that we all face, that we all see and that we all experience, but here, as men and women of understanding, James gives us the reason why. Why are there fights and quarrels? Why is there war and conflict? Why are we naturally so much better at making war than making peace? Ask most people, why are you angry or Why do you have a conflict with so-and-so? Why are you so irritated? They will invariably and immediately point outside of themselves, won't they? She drives me nuts. Well, he sure knows how to push my buttons. Or this checkout line is driving me crazy. Your country did this. Well, your country did that. The moment someone experiences anger or conflict or irritation, the instinct is to point outside of ourselves, isn't it? Oh, that person makes me so angry. Our fallen instinct when we experience anger and conflict is to look for the source of that agitation outside of ourselves. But James tells us that we've got it all wrong. We have it backwards. If we want to understand war and conflict, anger and annoyance, whether it's invading a country or a war zone in your own home, don't look outside. James says, look inside. Inside is the heart. Of course, we often say from this pulpit that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And here we get it even more specific. James zooms in on the desires of the heart. James draws a direct line between desire and conflict. What we want and what makes us angry are tied at the hip. Why is there war? Why is there conflict? Why is there anger and contention? One word, desire. War in Ukraine? Desire. War at the dinner table? Desire. 
Underneath every thought, word, and deed lies desire. Paul Tripp writes, quote, You and I are always desiring. Desire precedes, determines, and characterizes everything you do. Desires get you up in the morning and put you to bed at night. Desire makes you work with discipline to get one thing done and run as hard as you can to avoid another. Desires sculpt every relationship in your life. They are the lenses through which you examine every situation. At the foundation of all worship, whether true or false, is a heart full of desire, close quote. But be careful here. Does James say sinful desire? No, not necessarily at all. When our ears hear the word desire, we tend to think illicit desires, evil desires, wanting something we shouldn't have. But that's not what James has written. Listen closely. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? It is the battle of your desires that is causing the anger and conflict. There is a battle for control. When Russia goes to war with Ukraine, it is for what? It is for control. Both desire control. And so it is. Competing desires wage war to control our hearts. It is that battle within you that causes the strife. You know, our hearts at any given time, they are gushing with competing desires. And the desire that ultimately wins is going to dictate our actions. It's going to dictate what we say. Jesus says in Luke 6, out of the overflow of the heart, our mouth speaks. It will dictate what we do. But of course, for there to be a battle, there has to be two competing sides. And what are they? Who are they? Who are the players that are holed up in our heart, waging war, doing battle with each other, causing all this ruckus, causing the fight and the quarrel for control? Well, in reality, it's two kingdoms that are fighting. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of creation. Two forces that have both laid claim to your life and to its direction. All of our horizontal desires, beloved, meaning everything that you desire that's person to person or person to object, are in a battle royale for your heart with the very Spirit of God that lives within you. I desire God. I desire the Creator. But oh, do I desire the creation as well? Battle on. Battle on. What if I desire compliments, praise, sympathy, recognition, attention, that promotion, a fast checkout line at the grocery? You fill in the blank. Those are all created things. And when I don't get whatever it was I was desiring, what happens? Guns are drawn. Kingdom of God, kingdom of creation. I have a choice. Both sides have guns drawn. My desires are battling. At that point, I can either let the desire rule me, or I can make a choice where the kingdom of God rules the day and is magnified. And beloved, desires themselves are not bad things. We aren't Buddhists, right? Seeking to rid ourselves of, of all desires. Not at all. Desire is what moves us to do everything we do. The question is, what rules us? The question is, does that good or even legitimate desire grow to a place of importance and position that it must be met? Or if it's not, I'm going to act or I'm going to speak or I'm going to think in an ungodly way. We all desire to set up our own kingdom where we're treated in a certain way, where we're appreciated as we should be, where our spouse loves and adores us as the amazing person that we are, where I'm not inconvenienced or insulted. That's our kingdom. But there's already a king. A king who seeks to rule and reign in your heart, who seeks to fill the desires you have in a way that only the Creator can. And who better to know your needs than the one who made you? 
Get a hold of this, saints. If our heart is ruled by something created and not by the Creator, if our desire is for the created, guess what happens? Every person in our circle that touches that desire in any way is now either helping to fill that desire, so we love them now, we love to be with them now, or they're hindering that desire, making them an obstacle in our kingdom. Uh-oh, that sounds dangerous. And we, tempt to, and we tend to punish those who don't fill our desires. Everyone has their weapon of choice for that punishment. Could be the silent treatment. Could be open hostility, could be stinging sarcasm or anger. Take your pick, but they will pay for hindering our desire. When our created desire, good, bad, or otherwise, rises above the Creator in any situation, it's now in control. It won the battle, and everybody else had better get on side, or there will be executions in the ranks. That is where conflict comes from, the battle. Desires themselves are not wrong, but desires that rise to a level of competition with the king of kings who's also laid claim to you, that's going to bring a war. The creation and the creator both want us every minute of every day. But who will rule, beloved? That is what James is asking. That's what he's asking. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of creation? Conflict, war, anger, from the Ukraine to the dinner table comes when a created desire rises above the creator in our hearts and seeks to rule us. But for men and women of understanding, Paul tells the Colossians, let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. There will be no war, no battle, when the king is on the throne of our heart, in his rightful place. When Christ reigns supreme, we have no created kingdom of our own to protect or to make demands upon. And what peace will fill a nation? What peace will fill a home and a heart when we heed the counsel of the Lord? Amen? Amen. Well, it sort of feels like we could just go home on that, doesn't it? But we're just getting warmed up as we move into part two of our series on one of the most consequential events in all of Scripture, the Transfiguration. And our scene began last week with a group of emotionally and spiritually exhausted disciples. But we have a kind master in Jesus. And he seeks to encourage his disciples for the road ahead. He began straight away in chapter 9 telling them that there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God or the splendor of God having come in power. He's saying that there are a few people standing here, a select few that are going to get a down payment on what's coming. To encourage your hearts for the road ahead, I'm going to give you a peek behind the curtain. Because after the rejection, the suffering, and the death, there's going to be a resurrection. And there's going to be a glory As far as the disciples are concerned, and as we will see today, Jesus just told them that all they had been waiting for, the kickoff of messianic rule, was going to happen. Not sure when, but before I die, apparently. I guess better late than never. At least now it looks like we are getting somewhere. The kingdom of God is coming in power, Jesus said. I'll take that. I'll take that. Enough about this morbid tale of a murdered Messiah that they keep on hearing that makes no sense to the Jewish ear. But your kingdom being inaugurated? That we can get behind. Remember, in their hearts, and and maybe even spoken, they're still looking for a way around the cross. 
Peter is looking for a way around the cross. Like W.C. Fields when he was, he was caught reading the Bible one day and he said, I'm looking for a loophole. The disciples really love their master, but he's saying some crazy stuff. And there is no way they are going to allow anyone to hurt him and nevertheless, nevertheless kill him. Behold the patience of Jesus. And if we think that that mindset fades, go forward all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. What does Peter do to the man trying to arrest arrest Jesus? He cuts his ear off. (laughs) Well, we see only six days later, verse 2, that Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. His inner circle special to Jesus. They were part of the most intimate times in Jesus' life and ministry. And the master takes them up on what most agree is Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet above sea level. And the incredible scene that followed was recorded in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John speaks of it at the opening of his gospel as well when he speaks about beholding the glory of Christ. We know that the disciples were exhausted. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, they had experienced sorrow upon sorrow. And Luke's account tells us that they were overcome with sleep when they arrived on the mountain. And as they slept, they awoke to an indescribable scene. Verse 2 says that Jesus was transfigured before them. And we took great pains in part one last week to discuss what it meant for Jesus to be transfigured. It's a simple verb referring to an act that gives an outward expression of one's true inner character. That outward expression coming from and being truly represented of the inner character, meaning you're now seeing on the outside who he is on the inside. Jesus' garments were shining intensely white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Our Savior was lit up like the sun, sparkling as a diamond, dazzling white, His face being altered. Of course, this glory was always there, but it was veiled. To be transfigured is not to become something you were not. It is to reveal on the outside what you already are on the inside. And we take great care in our doctrine concerning these matters. Jesus has not changed. There is nothing new about him. He does not have an extra measure of glory that he did not possess before. At no time is Jesus anything less than fully God and fully man. His divinity was never turned up or turned down. Jesus was the same going up the mountain as he was walking down the mountain. And while we marvel at the great reveal upon the mountain that we're going to examine even further today, we were reminded that this was not the miracle. Jesus shining brilliant as the sun was not the miracle. The miracle is Jesus being able to contain His glory up until this point. Having a clay veil of humanity that could contain His glory, that is the miracle. And today, Jesus is closer to what He is. This is Him removing the veil. We mustn't get this backwards. The miracle has occurred continually in containing the glory, not revealing the glory. It's a lot harder to put on a disguise so well that that I couldn't recognize you than it is to remove a mask to see the face as you are. It's the disguising that's the hard part. And we are beholding our Savior in the most natural form we have been able to see Him in the Gospel up to this point. Peter, James, and John are receiving just a taste a taste of what is to come. Luke's account says the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Matthew says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. 
Of course, we know that in heaven, where the full glory of the triune God is on display, where the unveiled light of the Godhead is so bright, we don't even need a sun. Oh, how many of us look forward to that day. John encourages us, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Paul likewise encourages the church at Colossae, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Today, we continue with our transfiguration scene. Given that we might see, given that we might have hope, given that we might be encouraged, given that we might give up our temporal sight in favor of eternal eyes. Beloved, this is a text that makes a demand upon the hearer. We are confronted by the reality of Christ, who he is. And if the visual change of Jesus were not enough, we're about to see a very distinguished guest list join us up on our mountaintop this morning. So with that, let's take a look at our text. Mark 9, 4 through 8. Mark 9, 4 through 8. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And all at once, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by this text. Lord, this text raises so many questions for us. The Lord points to a glory that awaits Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to see just a glimpse of who you are. Lord, we ask that through this text we might be changed. Holy Spirit, we ask that the arrow find its mark and that it do the refining work that only you can do. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder how many of us in our daily Christian lives experience this phenomenon of knowing a central Christian truth being able to espouse maybe chapter and verse of a core truth about God, perhaps uh, about his redemptive work and plan, maybe the attributes of God, the truth of who he is. Many of us could regurgitate a fire hose of information about so many glorious truths of Scripture. But in some way, those truths seem to migrate out of our hearts and into our heads. Certain truths of Scripture seem to be packed like a helium balloon, and they float up out of our heart, which is, of course, the, the seat of our will and our affection, and up into the intellectual headspace. I felt myself wrestle with this very phenomenon as I swam in the depths of our scene today, asking along with the psalmist, Who is this King of glory? And I considered that psalm of praise of adoration and amazement and wonderment as I was reminded once again that Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, it was always the plan. God is never adjusting. He's never had to go to plan B. That's what we will see in our scene today. The planning and approval of God for what was about to take place 
from before time began. The death of His Son, the perfect sacrifice slain for His bride. As we open with verse 4, we're going to see the caliber of the company change considerably for Jesus. There's so much to see here, so let's dive into our first verse, Mark 9, verse 4. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. Well, before diving into the theological treasure chest that we have here, a few questions have to be answered. One, how does this happen? Where have Elijah and Moses been all this time? Have they been in heaven? Somewhere in between? And why are they here? Why Moses and Elijah? Where did they get their bodies from? What are they conversing with each other all about? What does this all mean? There are a trove of questions to be answered. Right? When in the middle of a New Testament gospel... Two figures from the Old Testament, one long dead and one taken up to heaven, just show up in body and start speaking with Jesus. Well, inquiring minds want to know. First question. And in fact, I had this question posed to me the other day, so it's of great interest to people. Where exactly have Moses and Elijah been all this time? That's a great question. We hear terms in Scripture like paradise, Hades, Abraham's bosom, Gehenna, Sheol. All this can be confusing. But with the presence of two Old Testament saints now standing before us in the New Testament, it really begs those questions. And it's a great place to explain some of those terms. When Old Testament believers would die, and by believers, what are we talking about? We mean those who have lived a life of forward-looking faith to the Messiah that would come, right? Living a life of expectant obedience to God and His laws. When they died, they went to a place called paradise. The Old Testament clearly portrays a life after death and that everyone who departed from this life would go to a place of conscious existence, And the general term for this place was Sheol. And that can be translated the grave or or even the realm of the dead. And we know that both the wicked and the righteous were there in Sheol. We have numerous scriptural proofs about this throughout the Psalms and even in Isaiah. Well, now the New Testament equivalent of Sheol is called Hades. And if we look at Luke 16, many of us remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Right? It shows us that prior to Christ's resurrection, Hades was a place that was divided into two realms. We had a place of comfort where Lazarus was. This was often called Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. And on the other side was a place of torment where the rich man was. Again, Lazarus's place of comfort was called paradise. The place of torment called Gehenna or hell in the Greek. And we'll see that coming up here later in Mark 9. And we see that in Luke, between paradise, or Abraham's bosom, and Gehenna, or hell, which are the two districts of Hades, there was a great chasm, and it cannot be crossed. When it's done, it's done. There is no purgatory. Well, today, when an unbeliever dies, he follows the Old Testament unbelievers to the torment side of Hades. And at the final judgment, Hades will be emptied out before the white, great white throne where its occupants will be judged prior to entering the lake of hell that we read about in Revelation 20. On the other hand, when a believer dies today, he is present with the Lord. We see that in heaven, 2 Corinthians 5. There we join with the Old Testament saints who are already there enjoying their reward. However, do we, the deceased believer, or the Old Testament saints, have their physical resurrected body yet? Their physical eternal body that's given in perfection. We are present with the Lord upon death, but do we have these glorified bodies yet? Not yet. Dr. John MacArthur writes, quote, Scripture teaches that the believer, while in the presence of the Lord, will not receive his glorified body until a later time. Upon death, 
Our bodies go into the grave and await the second coming of Christ when He will raise and transform them. The Apostle Paul speaks of the time when our spirits will be again united with our bodies so that we will no longer be naked, but able to live throughout eternity in the form God created us to enjoy. What a promise. The new body of the Christian is yet future, though each deceased saint is now in the presence of the Lord. Close quote. In short, both we as New Testament believers and Old Testament saints alike get their new bodies at the second coming of Christ, after the tribulation. Now let us not confuse the rapture with the second coming. That's also an easy thing to do. I see a lot of pencils writing feverishly in here. At the rapture, believers meet the Lord in the air. At the second coming, believers return with the Lord to the earth. The rapture occurs before the tribulation. The second coming occurs after the great and terrible tribulation. The rapture is the removal of believers from the earth. It's an act of deliverance. But the second coming includes the removal of unbelievers as an act of judgment. The rapture will be secret and instant. The second coming is going to be visible to all. You got all that? (laughs) Well, at the second coming of Christ, you will return with Christ, having been in His presence, and will get your new glorified body. That's amazing stuff to think about. And that's what makes our scene today with with Moses and Elijah being physically there so interesting. So back to our text in question, where did Moses and Elijah get their bodies? Well, I have a very technical answer for you. I don't know. I don't know. Theologians throw out all sorts of possible answers. Did God give them loners? Did they get a loner body? Maybe. Being Moses and Elijah, did they get some special perks so they got their new glorified body early? We don't know. Ultimately, God can do whatever He wants as it comports with His attributes. So we don't know why or how, but we know that He did it. And here they are. But why them? Why Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham or Noah? Take your pick of the patriarchs. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, I could share that if you go to study this particular matter, there there begins to be a lot of conjecture. There's a lot of surmising going on, a lot of guesswork in looking for the connection. You know, everything from this being something of a, a cosmic reenactment of Mount Sinai where Moses took three up with him onto the mountain in Exodus 24 and he encountered God. And of course, later Elijah also met with God on the same mountain in 1 Kings 19. Well, that parallel is far from complete. It involves some stretching, so I'm not a fan of that explanation. And of course, the more traditional view is that this simply represents the law and the prophets. Moses the law, Elijah the prophets. They're there affirming that Jesus is the one that they were pointing to. We affirm this, right? It's it's a scene of Old Testament confirmation by way of representative. And there is truth in that. And to be honest, that preaches really well. I would love to run with it. But that does not seem to best fit the text. A few reasons. One, order matters. Order matters in Hebrew writing. If we meant to simply represent the law and the prophets in that sense, it would likely read Moses first for the law and Elijah second for the prophets. Instead, what does verse 4 say? And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. That's big. That's big, especially when we dig into the writing of this, how, what Mark is, is intending to convey by saying Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. And secondly, Elijah was not a writing prophet, was he? He was a defender of the law. He spoke prophetically, but he never wrote. So if Elijah is mentioned first, and Elijah is not a writing prophet, what is the point here? If you merely mean to represent the prophets, send Isaiah perhaps. No, we must catch this, saints. When you tell a first century Jew about Elijah, something very specific comes to mind. 
the promise of the eschatological return of Messiah. And we don't need to speculate on this. What have we seen up to this point? People looking for Elijah all over the place. Mark 6.15, but others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Going forward, Mark 8.28, and they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. We see the context of looking for Elijah. Why? Because they know Malachi 4. Elijah would be the forerunner. If Elijah has come... Messiah is coming. Often in our view of this mountain scene, Moses is kind of the grand poobah in our minds, right? Well, because he's Moses. He's Moses, right? But that's not what our text says. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. Elijah is the primary, not Moses. Moses is there, yes, but it is the message and the eschatological, messianic meaning of having Elijah there that is most in view. It is Elijah being there, proclaiming that the messianic age is upon you. Not only that, but both Elijah and Moses were both types and foreshadows of Christ. They both knew what it meant to suffer at the hands of ungodly men, to be rejected by men. Elijah was the poster boy for being persecuted unfairly by evil men and evil women. In fact, Jesus uses very similar language to Elijah in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. This is echoing Elijah in 1 Kings 19.14. And we don't need to surmise about Elijah being primary or that this was indeed the takeaway of a first century Jew to the event. Just look quickly down in the Bibles in your lap. Look quickly down verses 11 through 13 of the same chapter, chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. What, what is the topic du jour here walking back down the mountain? It's Elijah. The timing of Elijah. The meaning of his coming. Elijah, Elijah. So we're not guessing here. Mark tells us what is on their minds, what it means that Elijah is here. So the presence of Elijah and Moses, it's not as as simple as a, a representation of the law and the prophets, affirming that Jesus is the one. That's true, but it's bigger than that. The focus is different from that. Next week, we will dive deeper into the matter of Elijah and how it relates to Messiah and his coming, how it interacts with the coming of John the Baptist, etc. It's far, far too much for us to cover today. It's it's a huge topic that we want to give proper treatment to. But back to our text. We posed a number of questions at the beginning of our message, which we've answered, but the last one being, what were they talking about? What were they talking about? Well, Mark doesn't tell us, but if we rotate the gospel diamond over to Luke, we get additional insight. Luke's account reads, two men, talking about Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They spoke about his departure. They were discussing Jesus's death. That's the point of this whole meeting. And I know you disciples still don't get it. I know that a crucified Messiah makes no sense to you. But here is the one who penned the law. And here's the one you're looking to that's a forerunner to me, standing here telling you that I must die. And if Elijah and Moses are standing here with our master... The last thing I would expect to be talking about, the last thing would be the death of Messiah. This is all backwards. Elijah means the ushering in of the Messianic age, that all is about to be made right. Israel is going to be restored. Evil is going to be washed away. This is the Messianic Messiah's kingdom. And yet, here are the very representatives that we look for, both in the Pentateuch and as the forerunner, saying, 
we're here to talk about your death. We're here to talk about your death. And given Jesus' incredible sorrow and his physical faintness in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's not hard to conceive that Elijah and Moses were encouraging Jesus for the road ahead as well. Remembering he's fully God, yes, but also fully man. Jesus knew what it was to sorrow. He knew pain. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Jesus can. Here we have every reason to believe that Jesus is being encouraged and strengthened for the coming cross. And while all this is going on, here's Peter, James, and John standing there with either their jaws on the ground, perhaps, or prostrate on the ground. I I have no idea. What we do know is Peter's very bizarre response. What a reaction. Verses 5 and 6 here. Verses 5 and 6, I'll read them as one. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three booths, one for you and one for for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. There's so much going on here. This is a sermon unto itself. But taking it from the beginning, and Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Well, to put this in modern terms, Peter's starstruck. He's babbling here. It's good for us to be here. He has no idea what to do or say. And and can you blame him? This is sensory overload, right? The master's already standing there, glowing like a diamond. And now here we have Elijah and Moses. It's all a bit much. He's starstruck. He doesn't know what to say. This seems like it's the first thing to come out of Peter's mouth. But there's something remarkable that we can't miss here. In Mark, Peter calls him rabbi. In Matthew, he calls him Lord. In Luke, he calls him master. Well, this tells us two things. One, that Peter likely used all three titles when calling to him. And second, most amazingly, the way it is written tells us that Peter actually interrupted Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. Lord, Master, Rabbi, like that. And one commentator opined that it would have been good for Peter if he had known the old American proverb, never pass up an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. Well, if you're going to interrupt the creator of the universe chatting with the writer of the law of God, along with one of the most powerful prophets of all time, talking about, oh, say, the salvation of mankind through his sacrificial death, let's hope you have something good to say. All right, Peter, what is it? Let us build three booths. (laughs) One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Well, what's happening here? To understand it, we have to understand when exactly it was Peter makes his bizarre offer. First, Peter interrupts Jesus, Elijah, and Moses, calling out. And at this point, we see in Luke's gospel that it's there that Elijah and Moses turn to leave. So that's when Peter jumps in, basically saying, wait, wait. Let us make three booths, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Don't leave. That's the thrust of it. But why? Why? Well, other than it being super cool to have these guys here, why did Peter want to do whatever he could to stop them from leaving? Well, Moses is here. Elijah the forerunner is here. Jesus the Messiah is is here. And I, Peter, time and again, to the rebuke of my master even, have been trying to find a way around this whole business of the cross. If we can just establish this messianic kingdom right here, right now, no bloody cross. All the chess pieces are in place, right? Let's do this. This grand culmination up on this mountain If that doesn't sound like the starter pistol for the Messianic kingdom, I don't know what does. Kingdom now, 
no cross, no death. Elijah and Moses can't leave. Well, transfiguration took place in the month of Tishri. That's six months before the Passover. And guess what they were celebrating in the month of Tishri? It's called the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booze. So this timing made total sense to Peter. That's why he offered to build them booze, right? What better time to inaugurate the kingdom? All the pieces are in place. The timing makes perfect sense. Well, now Peter is about to take a very special place amongst humanity. Peter is about to gain a distinction held, I don't believe, by anyone else. How many people in the world could say that they have been physically, audibly rebuked, not only by God the Son, but now by God the Father? That's what's about to happen to Peter. What an ignoble claim to fame. Look with me to verse 7. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. What a fantastic piece of irony that really could hardly be deceived. God the Father interrupts Peter, interrupting God the Son. Can we ponder that for a moment? God the Father interrupts Peter, interrupting God the Son. How patient and loving is our God toward us. Then a cloud formed. Then a cloud formed. This is the Shekinah cloud. This was the glory cloud enveloping the whole top of the mountain. This was the same cloud that guided Israel out of Egypt and that rested upon the tabernacle and was above the mercy seat in the most holy place. And here we see only the second time in Mark's gospel the voice of God the Father. Bringing back memories, of course, of Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Boy, could we not camp on that right there, beloved. But in truth, this is said as a rebuke. This is a rebuke to Peter. Stop talking. You're, listening, you're not listening with your ears. You're not listening with your heart. Like I sometimes tell my children, right? You may hear me, but you're not listening to me. The word listen here is in the present imperative for our, our A students here, meaning that we are to keep on listening as the habitual practice of one's life. God is saying, listen to him. If my son tells you he must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die, believe him. If he tells you he will be raised on the third day, believe him. If he says he will come again in glory, then believe him and live like it. And if he tells you to take up your cross and follow him, then that is what you are to do. Listen to him. Stop the mouth. We only look like fools. Listen to him. Not to Moses or Elijah. They'll soon be leaving again. Listen to my son. John declared in his gospel, for the law, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law is fulfilled. Prophecy is fulfilled. It's all in Christ. It's all in my son. So listen to him. If there were to be an audible voice from heaven in Lanesville 2022, I have no doubt that the words would be the same. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Final verse, verse 8. And all at once, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. In a moment, preview over. Over. And we know from the other accounts that the disciples were buried in the ground at this point. They were deathly afraid. But as they looked up, there was the master. There he was as they had always known him. Perhaps wondering if this had all been a dream. But they know it was no dream. 
Peter and James and John, they were forever changed. And oh, Peter. (laughs) Peter would later declare in his epistle, as we read this morning, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. I was there. I was there. I saw it with my own two eyes. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, the pure revelation of God's glory, Paul refers to Him as the Lord of glory and that we see the glory of God in the face of Christ, that He is the radiance of God, Hebrews tells us. Jesus was transfigured on the mountain that day that His disciples might see. See a glimpse of Jesus as He is to prepare both Jesus and the disciples for the road ahead, for the sacrifices that will surely come. We have the story preserved for us, beloved, that we might see. Who is this King of glory? He is the Lord. He is not in a manger. He is not a boy in the temple. He is not an aspiring young carpenter. He is not a teacher from Nazareth, nor a preacher from Galilee. He is not a miracle worker to the Gentiles. He's not a whipped and bloody image. He's not on the cross and he's not wrapped in the grave. He is alive and he is radiant and his eyes are like fire. Jesus Christ is the rider on the white horse and he is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who he is. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Behold His glory, and may your life be transformed by that glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have a great privilege in this text. Lord, we have a word that demands something of us, the hearers. Lord, we ask that we would not be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. That we be not deceived. That we have seen you in our mind's eye and in the eye of our heart who you are. And Lord, that there is a glory that awaits us. Lord, that we might live in the light of that glory that we might walk in the boldness of who you are now, seated at the right hand of God the Father, ever living to make intercession for us, your children. We thank you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray.